Um, good afternoon. Um, thank you to the Centre for um, Ethics uh, for having me um, and special thanks to uh, Amanda Greer um, for organising this, um, this series. So my paper today launches um, straight into analysis. Um, so I thought I would just give a little bit of background um, for those of you who may not be familiar with um, Anne Charlotte Robertson and her work. Also, just a, a quick note, um, I have an almost 10 month old um, who is uh, not very far from this room. And so if you do hear kind of rogue um, whining, we're in a very whiny stage, um, then that's what it'll be. Um, but I'm hoping it doesn't happen too, too much. Um, so some background on Robertson before we begin. So Robertson, was a super eight uh, millimeter experimental filmmaker from Boston. Her oeuvre consists of a long list of short films, um, as well as her magnum opus, uh, Five Year Diary, a multimodal project that comprises uh, written, audio, and cinematic diaries, which uh, the artist kept between uh, roughly 1959 and 2000. Uh, Robertson continuously edited and re-edited uh, the Mammoth Diary film, uh, which has a running time of around 40 hours um, and uh, edited and re-edited this work for, um, for decades. Um, the text functioned in an autobiographical register as a space in which Robertson could kind of work through a number of lifelong concerns. Her endeavors in cooking and gardening, um, her obsession with weight loss, also her uh, enduring romantic obsession with Tom Baker, uh, the third Doctor Who, um, the trials of experimental filmmaking, um, her relationships with her family, um, but also as one of the primary ways she thought through uh, a debilitating mental illness, struggling with bipolar disorder with schizoaffective overlay. Now, today's paper focuses on just one of these aspects, specifically her mental illness, but I'm very happy to talk more about the larger project um, in the Q&A. I'll also be showing a few clips from Five Year Diary, um, particularly from two of the final reels of the work, um, reels 80 and 81. Um, and uh, I would just like to thank the Harvard Film Archive um, for the courtesy of being able to show um, this material. They are the custodians of the Anne Charlotte Robertson collection. So let's launch into the paper. A year into first starting to record her life on film as what would eventually become Five Year Diary, Robertson recorded the details of a mental breakdown she suffered the year before in a written diary entry. And um, you'll see I have posted some of these written diary entries um, in the slides. She writes, what's been happening this year? I borrow camera from school and no one retrieves it. It is taped together. The focus is broken since it has fallen twice at the end of the summer. I lose my job, which kept me grounded, though deluded, since my father's death. I pick blackberries, raspberries, and unemployment checks. I begin to get panicky. Symptom, film everything in short flashes, series of manic audio tapes, very prolific. I do a screening at home and show five hours of the diary. I go bananas, think I can be the ultimate psychic. This was not Robertson's first breakdown. In therapy since the age of 17, she had, she noted, been given a range of diagnoses over the course of her life, 
adult life crisis adjustment, anxiety, borderline psychotic, manic depressive, obsessive. Little documentation survives of these diagnoses. From what does survive, it seems that the diagnoses most consistently made were that of bipolar depression and of schizoaffective disorder. By 1982, when the events the diary entry above refers to took place, she had also been hospitalized every year since 1978, spending an average of three months interned during each stay. The rest of her life would be marked by multiple hospitalizations during the course of every year and therapy with a rotating set of therapists, psychiatrists, social workers, and family counselors each time she was released. This pattern continued up until her death in 2012. At times suffering from debilitating depression, she also had to contend with a host of delusional thought patterns and both visual and auditory hallucinations. From the earliest screenings of Five Year Diary, Robertson emphasized the role her illness plays in the work. In the screening notes of the project, she notes that uh, the filmmaker is diagnosed as manic depressive and that the work is trying to make a joyful statement about a mel melancholic person. I grew stronger by looking at my life. Robertson also consistently framed the diary as not only an anchoring point in her life, but in fact as that which kept her sane. As she wrote in an official grant application in 1991, where she requested funds to process, edit, and add a year's, uh, a voiceover to a year's worth of diary tapes. Making my diary has literally saved my life. In the work of Scott MacDonald, the critic who is devoted uh, the most focus to Robertson's oeuvre, her illness is considered in similar terms. In an interview with Robertson, he suggests that, and I'm quoting uh, MacDonald, when you're not able to make films, your life seems in crisis, adding later that for Robertson, making and showing the diary has become a central means for maintaining psychic balance. Yet the relationship between Robertson's diary and her illness is more complex than this would suggest. In certain ways, its practice served the obsessional nature of Robertson's manic states, whilst the text itself was a locus for her delusional thought to coalesce around. And here I, I mentioned that I'm not speaking about um, the ways in which the text becomes uh, a way for her, her illness to, to coalesce around in today's talk, but um, I am happy to, to branch out into that um, in the Q&A if anyone's interested. Instead, what I want to talk about today is the way in which the diary functioned as a way for Robertson to make sense of that which is senseless, to seek ways to impose form on the amorphous mass of delusional thought she experienced. This imposition of form utilized medium-specific elements of cinema to move from nonsense to sense, a process we could also call that of making the personal legible to the collective or of moving from speaking to oneself to the ability to speak to others. In the fall of 1994, Robertson set up her camera in her lounge. It is facing a daybed on which she sits and, speak, uh, sits and speaks. Her expression is despairing, her face appears haggard. She is never still for long, anxiously touches her hair or reaches for objects outside the underexposed frame. Throughout the scene, Robertson struggles with the apparatus. The monologue is plagued by constant technical interruptions. We see her adjust the lights she has set up for the scene and the camera captures her seated body in long shot.
Wicker shows. I empty the ashtray about eight times a day. I weigh 182. This is called talking hits in documentary. Somebody just talking. Picture of a person, just a talking hit. I'm more than that. This costs 12 cents a second for just to film and process. And I live on do it. This is a scene. See, I have a light set on. I had another light. I had to switch film. The film ran out. And this is a scene. I live on disability, social security. But I'm only 45. How long before the psychiatric pills destroy my mind? I'm terrified of blinking out when I die. Like a light bulb. It had been ten and a half years since I'd made love with anyone. I'm terrified of not having a husband or children. I've lived with my mother for 11 and a half years now. She watches me. I'm the potential mental patient. Chronic, chronic, chronic. I'm afraid I've lost my beauty. I'm 50 pounds overweight. 50 pounds, 60 pounds, maybe. I lift weights. I go for walks. I bicycle. I'm afraid I've lost my beauty. And where's the story? Something good. Something good has to happen. Otherwise, I'm afraid my despair will make me die. I don't want to blink out like a light bulb when I die. Variants of this scene crop up throughout five, uh, variants of the scene crop up throughout Five Year Diary, scenes in which Robertson treats the camera as something to confess to. She interrupts the regular recording of her day and how it unfolds in accelerated motion to pause for a series of particularly stylized scenes that are sparsely distributed in the first half of the diary film, but that steadily increase over the course of the latter half of the film and culminates in large swathes of the final reels of the film being taken up in this register. These scenes take two forms. The first is close-up or extreme close-up shots of Robertson's face as she speaks into the camera, often posing questions to it, addressing it directly. The second form also involves Robertson's direct address of the camera, but here she is presented in long shot, for the most part seated on a daybed in her lounge, as you had just seen. Both forms of confessional present Robertson in affective states of agitation, uh, aggression, sadness, or despair, and she appears visibly more unkempt than she does in other parts of the diary. These scenes are also all marked by the high instance of technical failure that is evident throughout. Sound not properly recorded, underexposed shots, and unfocused frames. In this confessional register, where what Robertson discloses is the many ways a body like hers can break down, she employs the instances of technical failure to structurally embed this breakdown into the cinematic diary. In Five Year Diary, the register of confession is grounded in the form of the diary, but also in the practice of cinematic recording itself. Diaries, as private or secret documents, often bear the weight of its owner's confessions. And from the early diaries onwards, this is Robertson's approach. In the very first of her diaries that form part of the work, 
uh, written between the ages of 10 and 12. She notes, I confessed to everything, most everything that is, and confession is good for the soul. Once Robertson starts shooting her cinematic diary, the confessional elements of the apparatus and of ex cinematic exhibition begin to play an important role in how she approaches the recording of every day. The dark space of the film theater becomes the dark space of the confessional box, with Robertson confessing directly to the camera. She often adopts forms that always already imply a listener or recipient. She would at times employ the diary as a type of letter, addressing portions of the written and cinematic diary to particular people. Within this context, the confessional is another format uh, that, like the letter, speaks of being with. This question of relationality, of how one lives and speaks with another, extends to how she uses the cinematic screen as a stand-in for the traditional screen between confessor and priest. In this piece of confessional furniture, the tension between visibility and invisibility that is central to the confession is already evident. Like all sacraments, the sacrament of confession instated by the Catholic Church's Council of Trent in 1551 was framed as an outward or visible manifestation of something that is inside, invisible, secret. Forgiveness by a priest upon hearing the confession is thus bestowed in a semi-public space uh, as a way of reflecting what Christ is doing inside of you. Robertson's swapping of confessional screen for cinematic screen is thus an important intervention. Where the confessional screen is a means to ensure the individual's privacy, the cinematic screen does exactly the opposite. The confessional screen exists in a relationship that involves the confessor, the priest, and God, and remains an explicitly private affair. The cinematic screen moves the confession from the realm of the private to the realm of the public by introducing an audience. The host of interlocutors that now hear the confession also changes its stakes. Where the traditional confessional airs secrets before God, the cinematic confessional facilitates a making visible before the world and becomes an attempt for the confessor to speak, to make sense to others, to be understood. The confessional mode was by no means a new aesthetic device, as David James reminds us in To Free the Cinema. From the 1960s onwards, American arts and literature had seen the emergence of many autobiographical texts that operate in a confessional register. James mentions the work of artists as diverse as Robert Rauschenberg and, and uh, Allen Ginsberg in this autobiographical term, but also stresses the importance of confessional poets like Robert Lowell. Noel's Life Studies, published whilst he was living in Boston in 1959, was instrumental to the new direction of the work of prominent women poets, which included um, Sylvia Plath, Adrian Rich, and, and Sexton, who attended his poetry workshops in the Boston in the 50s, uh, sorry, in the 60s, followed. In the hands of these women poets, the confessional register provided a form with which to address the specific, uh, specificity of their lives as women. The emergence of the confessional register in the early days of second wave feminism was also reflected in the movement itself through the practice of collective uh, confession in the form of consciousness raising sessions and in the movement's embrace of the diary. The confession in diary form is explicitly political as James notes. In diaries by women, <coughs> in diaries by women, introspection and self-awareness were understood as individual participation in a collective historical recovery. Its open-ended, non-hierarchical, impermanent form could be proposed as intrinsically feminist, defined against its completed, teleologically ordered, 
permanent and hence masculinist sibling, the autobiography proper. James's articulation of the gender divide when it comes to the form of the diary, confession and autobiography is important for this discussion in part because it traces a genealogy in which Robertson's own confession slash diary slash autobiography steps into a few decades later. But it is also valuable for the way it casts the work of women in this field as that which is ultimately formless, impermanent, incomplete. James is not alone in typifying women's diaries or autobiographical confessions uh, in this way. The confession um, as a specifically female discursive practice highlights the way the personal and autobiographical is split along gendered lines. The realm of the personal and the sexual has always been literary for men. St. Augustine, Rousseau, Henry Miller, writes Laurie St. Martin, and confessional for women, Colette, Erica Young, Anais Nin. The gender divide of the confession also figures distinctions in form, which is to say, who gets to have form and who remains in the realm of the formless. In Beyond Feminist Aesthetics, Rita Falsky outlines the tradition of woman's autobiography, which typically focuses upon the details of domestic and personal life and is fragmented, episodic and repetitive, lacking the unifying linear structure imposed upon a life by the pursuit of a public career. What Felsky juxtaposes here is, on the one hand, autobiographical texts about men's lives that plot the traditional route of a public career, which proceeds through a linear route of educational training, followed by a succession of different positions with increased seniority that culminate in retirement. On the other hand, one has women's autobiographical texts that focus on their lives and work within the home, a sphere in which their labor and achievements is less easy to plot in a linear manner and in which advancement is not a real part of the economy. The diary, filled with daily events and personal confessions, becomes emblematic of this gendered approach, as Suzanne Juhas argues. The diary provides the sense of factualness, the sense of the personal, the sense of process, the sense of dailiness, the sense of immersion, rather than conclusion or analysis or patterning. For Robertson, the sense of dailiness does not preclude the ability to analyze. The sense of process does not preclude the ability to recognize and establish patterns. The unifying linear structure of her diary is indeed not the result of a life shaped by the pursuit of a public career, but it is nonetheless a product of doing the work, the work of producing and recording and interpreting the confession. For Robertson, the confessional scenes of her diary are a way of making sense of her illness, where making sense is understood here as cohering into a form. What the next few pages show is just how formally exacting Robertson's confessional diary entries are, and how paying attention to their formal specificity provides important clues to understanding her particular uh, intervention in the role that confessional material has played in historical instances of female pathology. The confessional scene, the confessional scene starts with the face of a woman not groomed, or if she appears like that on camera, she must be crazy. In scene after scene, Robertson presents her face to us in close-up, the lack of proper lighting emphasizing the heavy, ever-present bags under her eyes, her blotchy or inflamed skin, her scraggly hair. She asks us to look at her. She asks us what we see. Already here, Robertson inserts herself into the history of female pathology. As Mary Ann Doan uh, articulates, 
In the 1940s films of the medical discourse, neuroses and even psychoses are evidenced not by contorted limbs and paralysis, but by a marked lack of narcissism on the part of the sick woman. The illness of the woman is signaled by the fact that she no longer cares about her appearance. But it is not only caring too little that is marked as pathological, uh, Elaine Showalter reminds us. When it comes to the outward appearance as a manifestation of a woman's mind, she is always already caught up in a double mind from which she cannot escape. Showalter writes, Victorian psychiatrists had strong views about how their patients should look. Female patients were expected to care more about their appearance than males, and indeed, their sanity was often judged according to their compliance with middle-class standards of fashion. Yet too much attention to dress and appearance was a sign of madness as well. Both these markers, of caring too much, of caring too little, are singled out as outward markers of madness in the photographs taken in Victorian asylums, the very first instances of the photographic capture of madness. A focus on her appearance remains an enduring marker of Robertson's confessionals. In Real 81, where Robertson is fresh out of the hospital, the sequence begins with an initial shot where she looks dejectedly into the camera. Pickled above 300 yards that summer. I'm 45 and a half. Have I lost my beauty? Hmm? Have I lost my beauty? Have I? Have I? Have I lost my beauty? Have I? Have I lost my beauty? Have I? Had I lost one? The sequence escalates to an extreme close-up of her forehead and her one eye. This is followed by another extreme close-up where Robertson moves the camera across her face, her skin inflamed as we are offered an intimate survey of her mouth up to her nose, moving to her eyes where she stares into the camera. She never lowers her gaze even as the image repeatedly cuts. The tight editing repetitively enacts the splitting of the self that occurs in the breakdown. Here, Robertson is in effect using her body to show us how things break, where her insistent questioning unearths the violence that is embedded in this endeavor. Brecken, the old English word from which break originates, reminds us that this involves the division of solid matter violently into parts or fragments. The different parts of Robertson's face in extreme close-up, the fragments we are left with. Here it is important to pay attention to the formally consistent manner Robertson shoots these elements, starting with her use of the close-up. It is not necessarily surprising that Robertson chooses what Germaine Dulac terms the psychological shot, the very thought of the character projected on screen, to present her confessionals, often framed within the context of an illness of a mind to the audience. Dulac also reminds us that the close-up belongs to the intimate life of people or things, and thus its use underscores the very particular movement that the confessionals and Robertson's diary as a whole engages in, of taking the world of the everyday and the admissions of the private realm into the sphere of the public, of blowing it up, of projecting it. 
cinema is crucial to this attempt, as what Robertson captures in these close-ups of the cinematic diary are the nervous gestures, which Sean Epstein argues figures as the main specific, sorry, as the medium-specific photogenie of the form. Still in real 80, Robertson cuts to another shot of her face, the heavy bags under her eyes still the prominent focus, even though the shot is generally not in focus. Her tone has shifted to aggression, her teeth involuntarily grind in the pauses of her speech. And one can almost imagine that it is about Robertson that Epstein writes when he describes a close-up. A muscle bridles, the lip is laced with ticks like a theater curtain. There we go. Uh, a muscle bridles, the lip is laced with ticks like a theater curtain. Everything is movements, imbalance, crisis, crack. Robertson speaks looking directly into the camera. try to imagine being happy so you can see my face miracles is rather stiff my I mouth is making you. movements it means i'm taking the anti-psychotic medication happy. and getting side effects the idea even sometimes i seem happy sometimes i seem happy despite it all I don't know, or pretending to be happy. I can't be happy. What is mania? Can I also have happiness? And am I not manic when in fact it's fantasy or joy or panic? And perhaps what I need is goodness. Epstein's description already foreshadows the way Robertson engages the close-up to figure the breakdown of the mind in the way he described the shot scale's ability to capture everything that splits. The mouth gives way like a ripe fruit splitting open. As if slit by a scalpel, a keyboard-like smile cuts laterally into the corner of the lips. In focusing the camera on her face, Robertson enters the long history of psychiatric profiling on the basis of physiognomy. As Showalter explains, this practice originates from a Darwinian understanding of mental illness, where insanity represented an evolutionary reversal, a regression to a lower nature, which doctors could diagnose by carefully studying the face. For Darwinian psychiatrists, Showalter, Showalter writes, the set of an ear, the shape of a brow, even the quiver of an eyebrow, were clues to the lingering madness of an individual. The invention of photography greatly facilitated this diagnostic tool, as George D. D. Uberman notes in The Invention of Hysteria. 
In the 1860s, photography made its triumphal, triumphalist entry into the Museum of Pathology. Photography showing the least flaw and what an impression it made. Photographic endoscopy, finally able to the, unveil the most secret anatomy as it is. The seat of nervous illnesses could finally be seen and in person. What photography gives to the project of rendering visible the invisible malady of madness is strikingly similar to what the project of diarizing gives to the individual recording their life, a means of preserving a memory and of providing the possibility of review. The photographs of these women um, photographed by um, Charcot in Salpetriere, um, like, uh, like Robinson's, uh, captured in temporal states, either waiting for an attack in the midst of one or just recovering, were firstly supposed to serve a memory of an event in the patient's medical history. This record of the past could then be employed to review different cases as they came into the hospital and be circulated between hospitals and between doctors who were all engaged in research of these nervous disorders as a durable trace of all pathological manifestations. This visual manifestation of the intimate life of the ill woman is made possible because the mind is breaking. Didi Uberman employs an image Sigmund Freud uses to think about what the camera offers Charcot's project at Salpetriere when he writes, where pathology points to a breach or a rent, there may normally be articulation present. If we throw a crystal on the floor, it breaks, but not into haphazard pieces. It comes apart along its lines of cleavage into fragments whose boundaries, though they were invisible, were predetermined by the crystal structure. Mental patients are split and broken structures of the same kind. Photography thus becomes, Didi Uberman argues, a great optical machine that allows one to decipher the invisible liniments of a crystal by repeatedly breaking it again and again, capturing every break on film. But perhaps even more importantly, what photography gives to the treatment of madness is the ability to take these singular instances of breaks and consolidate them into a type. As Albert Lond in Didi Uberman, one of the photographers at the Salpetriere explains, determining the fasces appropriate to each illness and each affection, placing it before everyone's eyes is precisely what photography is able to do. In certain doubtful or little known cases, a comparison of prints taken in various places or at distant times provides the assurance that the illness in different subjects who were not on hand at the same time is indeed one and the same. What photography thus makes possible is the containment of the excess of madness into a type or a form, a type or a form that coheres around the repeated capture of the figure of the face. It is my contention that Robertson's confessionals operate in a similar register and attempt to impose form on the excesses of madness she is subjected to. This stretches from the close-up to the act of cinematic diarizing itself, where the possibility of review, of observation over time and across repetitive instances, becomes a way for Robertson to make use of what Scott Curtis, in speaking about the observational practice that Phil made possible for early scientists, describes as a self-disciplinary method of ordering thought. As he continues to explain, film was not simply a useful tool for understanding complex events. The use of film actually made manifest a mode of understanding. The imposition of form becomes a mode of understanding for Robertson, a mode of making sense. In part, this imposition of form lies in the way her confessionals, like the images captured 100 years earlier, rely on a structure of repetition and are carefully calibrated to remain formally consistent over large periods of time. 
This too is a marker of the formal confession in both the Catholic tradition and in the way it is used in criminal investigations, which is to say, both of these instances rely on a specific repeatable form. The sacrament of confession is implemented through a, through a dogmatically sanctioned practice that is done in a particular way with particular confessional furniture, a confessional manual, and particular words that need to be said every time, both consistent and repetitive from instance to instance. The criminal interrogation, which facilitates the confession, is similarly structured with manuals that detail the design of the interrogation room, the close proximity of the interrogator's chair in relation to the suspects, the interrogator's clothing, his forms of address to the suspect. Robertson works hard at achieving the same consistency of form from confessional to confessional. She adopts the same pose in each shot, holds the camera in the same position, either at eye level or slightly above her face, or set up to film her body seated on a chair or a daybed. The first instance captures her face in close-up, the latter a medium-long shot of her figure, which emphasizes the excesses of her body, the weight she has gained under the baggy sweatshirts. Here, the choice of close-up is important again. If Robertson employs a close-up to articulate the ways in which she can break, she also makes use of what Doan terms the contradictory status of the shot scale, where it is both detail of a larger scene and a totality in its own right, and employs the close-up as a means of gathering the broken fragments and patching them back into a coherent whole. Indeed, Doan notes, the scale of the close-up transforms the face into an instance of the gigantic, the monstrous, it overwhelms. Yet it is this excessive technique that Robertson chooses in her attempt to impose form, to curb that which is too much. Where the close-up is traditionally understood as a means to direct the focus of the audience, Hugo Münsterberg noting that, the close-up has objectified in our world of perception, our mental act of attention. For Robertson, it becomes a means to direct her own thoughts, to focus her mind. As she addresses the camera directly, Robertson articulates all the ways in which she can fail in a repetitive, almost list-like manner, as if imposing form on the different ways a life can break, as if imposing form on the different ways a life can break allows her to break in this failure, to get a handle on what is always in excess, always too much. In Real 81, Robertson films a child demonstrating to her how to eat a peanut butter sandwich, then turns the camera on herself, reminding us how many things she has not learned to do. Different shots of her um, are edited together here, many of them underexposed or unfocused her face framed in close-up in each. Just a second. Other people have kids. I lost my beauty and my pills exist. The lover didn't come last night. Who am I kidding? 
a filmmaker. I think I'm beautiful. Are you kidding? There's days, you know, when you've lost your beauty forever. Forever. That child is beautiful. But I don't have any children. I have a film going on its 14th year. And I have no beauty. And the lover didn't come. I have no children. No mate. I smoke cigarettes. And hide the body. I'm supposed to face this as my fate. Broken, broken. Sunset. And I if the confessional scenes become a litany of the very many ways Robertson's life breaks down, it also functions as a way for her to break down the various elements of her life where she has failed. This is not just a way of recording these failures, but of ordering them, of breaking up her life into smaller parts, of differentiating them in a list of analysis, of classification. Here the attempts to make sense often brush up against that which is not sense, Robertson's attempts at breaking down her illness are always haunted by the specter of a mental breakdown. In these scenes, she is often recovering from one or trying to guard against one or watching as one approaches. In Real 80, just before she is hospitalized again, she turns the camera on herself. As is often the case in these scenes, the viewer, uh, in these scenes, Robertson positions her face in the center of the frame and appears in close-up. The viewer is first struck by two things, the heavy pronounced bags under her eyes and the strange cadence of her voice as she begins to speak, where it is unclear if she is drugged, drunk, or just severely upset. Robertson, visibly suffering, begins to speak, periodically punctuating the phrases of a sentence with a rueful smile, her mouth moving strangely throughout the scene. And then this is what she says. I shall try to imagine being happy. I shall hope for miracles. Why not? It's a good idea. I shall try to imagine being happy. The idea even. If a mental breakdown is defined as failing through incapacity, excess emotion, Robertson, even in the midst of such a breakdown, is attempting to make sense of the excesses of a mania by ordering it, explaining it, editing it. In the first chart, soon after she begins to speak, a second audio track is heard and Robertson's Robertson explains in voiceover recorded later, um, and, and you saw this a few clips ago, um, that the movements her mouth is making in the scene and the stiffness of her face is a side effect of the antipsychotic medication she is taking. Robertson often employs the voiceover within the diary's temporal possibility of review to make sense of the nonsensical, the mind in recovery clarifying the behavior and speech of the mind broken down. This scene, as all the other confessional scenes, is also tightly edited, as Robertson cuts between different points in the same monologue, excising parts from a larger, longer recording. Even the confession, the taking of one's measure, must itself be measured, moderated. The impulse to edit here is thus another attempt to curb the excesses of mania, even as the camera starkly reveals its stigmata, how stiff her facial muscles appear, the involuntary grinding of her teeth, the heavy bags under her eyes. But failure figures in another very important manner in these confessionals. As she attempts to order her thoughts and visibly struggles to articulate the formless into some sense of the coherent, she simultaneously visibly struggles with the very apparatus she works with. 
the most common forms of technical failure in this regard are Robertson's inability to, on the one hand, light the scenes where she addresses the camera and on the other, keep the image in focus. The dovetailing of her inability to focus the shot and her inability to focus her thought is perhaps most evident in Real 81, where Robertson tries to film the flowers she has planted for her dead niece, Emily, but is unable to adjust the camera to articulate them from a blur to a hollyhock. We watch as Robertson tries to adjust the exposure and frustratedly notes, playing on the double meaning of the word. Can I get them in focus? Who can? Who can focus? Throughout the confessional scenes, Robertson treats the failure of the apparatus as the structural means to articulate the failure of her body. In this way, she harnesses the failure of her films in a register that corresponds with how Sara Ahmed considers failure in queer phenomenology. So what does it say, what does it mean to say that an object fails to do the work for which it was intended? This failure might not simply be a question of the object itself failing. A hammer might be broken and not enable me to do one thing, but it could still let me do something else. Or to quote Hannah Arendt, the downfall can become a deed. The failure of the apparatus becomes another way for Robertson to articulate form, which is to say another means of making sense. Real 80 is a salient example in this regard. Robertson is recovering from a breakdown and uses the real to, again, list the various parts of her life plagued by failure. She sits on a daybed in a series of shots all plagued by underexposure, and the cut suggests that this is not the first take. She eventually settles on a greeting for her audience that acknowledges the failure of the frame. She notes, I'll probably only appear in silhouette. I drink too much wine, she says, with juice. The camera momentarily darts in an unfocused manner around the interior of the house in which Robertson is seated before returning to her face, still unfocused, her face bathed in the yellows and reds of a world without white balance. Later, she sits on the daybed again, a lamp next to it, the only light source, Robertson basically shrouded in darkness. The camera's inability to render the specificity of her body in the absence of light, its failure to produce a clear view of what has been placed before it, mirrors the many ways in which Robertson's life has broken down. I drink too much wine, she aggressively asserts as she speaks into the camera, and I shouldn't, yet I don't think of myself as an alcoholic. These failures are always all intertwined. A list never contains only one entry. It is still too dark to properly, to properly make out her features. She continues, I smoke marijuana occasionally and I drink too much coffee with soy milk, trying to be a vegan, trying to not hurt the cows. I am at least 60 pounds overweight. I weigh 183. Robertson moves slightly closer to the one lamp that lights the scene, now no longer completely shrouded in darkness, as she picks up a bottle of pills from the table beside her and starts to violently shake it, matching the cadence of her voice as she aggressively asserts, and I take anti, anti, anti-psychotic drugs. Suddenly deflated, she looks up frustratedly, throwing her hands up in the air. And can I find my true love? It's a good question. It's a good question. We should be cognizant of the fact that Robertson does not cut these technical failures, but she does not leave them unannounced either. Again and again, she draws overt attention to the failures of the film and mentions how she forgot to switch on the microphone, that the tape ran out, the light meter broke, the camera jammed. 
We are made to see that she has failed, but we are constantly reminded that she is aware of this failure, that she is not oblivious, that it has not passed her by. Failure, whether it's of her mind or of the camera, may have been the hand she has been dealt, but it has also been forged neatly into a form. It is important to note that Robertson's failure here is not the failure that Jack Halberstam outlines as an alternative feminist project, although it is feminist and it is central to her project. Halberstam's transgressive approach to the embrace of failure is one he articulates in um, his book, The Queer Art of Failure, where he notes that under certain circumstances, failing, losing, forgetting, unmaking, undoing, unbecoming, not knowing, may in fact offer more creative, more cooperative, more surprising ways of being in the world. Halberstam advocates for a complete dismantling of self and for forgetting as what he calls a useful tool for jamming the smooth operations of the normal and the ordinary. And it is here that this failure is everything that Robertson's is not. Dismantling the self is only an option for those not always already actively engaged in putting that self together. So is forgetting. You can only forget if you still actually remember, or as Robertson notes in Rule 47, looking into the camera, maybe these pictures will constitute my memory. Five Year Diary serves as a documentation of the endurance of decades of a mind breaking down. The cyclical nature of Robertson's illness, as it is recorded in the film, the repetitive regimes of therapy and drugs and hospitalizations and diagnoses, and the very scope of the film itself, how much of it there is, the excess of it, embodies the survival. In The Power of Feminist Art, Norma Broad notes that women are conservators. We collect, we save, we curate our lives, keep our diaries, journals, scrapbooks, so that we can prove we lived. This is not a new sentiment. Writing about her own art practice, often located in forms of art traditionally deemed female, Miriam Shapiro asks, if I repeat the shape of my being enough times, will that shape be seen? For Robertson, it is the repetition of the being that shapes that being, that allows it to cohere into a form a coherence which makes it visible to others, which allows her to move from speaking to herself to speaking to others. What makes her work so compelling is the way Five Year Diary seems to operate in both registers at once. Robertson is both caught up in her own worlds of mania and at the same time attempts to break through this impasse by continually trying to make herself legible to others, to that which is outside herself, a process we could perhaps call sanity. Thank you.